0: Good morning, everyone. Good morning. How are we doing this morning? Great. Wonderful, wonderful. Um, I have no money with me this morning. All right, but I still want to see if anyone, without looking at their notes or without looking at the U version notes, if they can remember what our cute little Saying is to help us remember how to share the gospel. What five parts we need to share the gospel with. But there's no money. Steve, cold fingers juggle green reindeer. What does it mean? Creation, fall. Justice or judgment, grace, and response. Response. Well, yes, very good, very good. I mean, I'm not going to tell you redemption's wrong. Redemption's an amazing answer, just not for this one. But, so, uh, because that response is incredibly important, that response lays the message of Christ and the cross, sin and our trouble with God, and it lays it at their feet saying, what are you going to do with this? And Scripture constantly in the New Testament says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. If you believe, you will be saved. So there is a necessary need to present both the creation and fall and justice and grace along with are you going to believe it? Are you going to make it yours, or what do you say? Uh, because God is going to hold them accountable for their response to the gospel message. So, cold fingers juggling green reindeer. I had someone uh, last week. I think it was asked me. Uh, you know, Tim, this is all great. This is you know, we're we're trying to understand how to present the gospel. Uh, But I have no one to present it to right now because every time I'm at the store Everybody is kind of all by themselves. You know, I'm not getting together with friends. So what's the use of learning this now? Uh, I can't think of a better time to learn it now because when you have the opportunity in time To talk to people again and to meet them and greet them and hang out with them. You're gonna be well equipped to share the gospel message with them. The fact that God created all things, including us, in a relationship with him. The fact that the fall happened and that relationship got separated. It got destroyed. And because of that, God has brought justice and judgment upon everyone who has sinned. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. All are enemies of God. But God entered in with christ and that gospel message of the cross to bring us redemption i knew i could work that in brought us redemption do you believe and so as we work on understanding that and indwelling it and just making it our own i think when we're given the opportunity we will have more and more courage and strength to share it with people because we are going to know it incredibly well But you might say, Tim, why in the world are we focusing so much on these cold-fingers-juggling-green-reindeer thing in the book of 1 Thessalonians? I am so glad you asked that very logical question. The church at Thessaloniki, which is in Greece, was started by Paul. He was not there very long, but a church got started, and people were excited about Jesus, and they came to genuine faith in Christ, and then Paul had to leave. And Paul's basis for everything he's writing in the book of 1 Thessalonians is rooted and grounded in that very first message they heard and believed. That very first message that they listened to Paul in the synagogues when Paul was on the street corner, when he was in the market, they listened to him and everything that this church is based upon, it all started with that gospel message of creation, the fall, the judgment, grace, and a response. And Paul keeps going back to that because there's a lot of people attacking him and the church saying that this was all set up to make money for Paul. And so Paul has been using the second chapter to answer those questions, and he's going to be using even the rest of the second chapter to answer that question that he started it, got money, and then left. People are attacking everything that Paul has done because people are coming to saving faith. It is changing them. It is changing their families. It is changing their culture. It is changing their city, and the city is rebelling against it. The unbelievers are fighting against it because it is challenging to them. When they got rid of their idols, they felt the guilt of that. And so they are attacking everything and anything Paul holds dear trying to discredit him because if they discredit him, maybe they can discredit the message. And if they can discredit the message, maybe all these people who left Judaism and idolatry will come back to it because right now they're worshiping Jesus and we can't have that because it is convicting to us. So how do we stop the message? Let's attack the messenger. So far, Paul has done a great job answering that, and he shows that his conduct is genuine. Everything that he has said and everything that he has done has had those people's best spiritual interest in mind. He's not doing it for the fame. He's not doing it for the money. And he's not doing it because he's a great speaker and he's a great thinker and he's a great arguer. None of that comes into play because this whole message is focused around the power of the Holy Spirit to change a person's life from fallen and judged to saved, to redeemed, to gloriously accepted into God's family now and forever. Are we okay? All right. One color. Uh, so let's start in the first uh, two verses there in First Thessalonians chapter two. First Thessalonians chapter two, starting in verse 17. And we're going to see that the real, folks, um, the real force behind all of this trial and challenging that Paul has had in reaching the Church of Thessalonica, is not man-made. It is spiritual, and it's of the devil. Listen to what he says, starting in verse 17. But brothers and sisters, something Paul has been saying the entire time in this book, he counts them near and dear to his heart. But brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time, look at that language he's using there. When we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time, in person, not in thought. Paul is saying that when we had to leave you, it felt like we were orphaned. It felt like we were leaving family. And when that happens, it is heart-wrenching. It's difficult. Think about those times where you've had family and friends over and you've met for, I don't know, a holiday, Christmas, Thanksgiving, Memorial Day, whatever, whatever the celebration is, and you've not seen them in a long time. Maybe it's been a couple years. And you have to part ways and they have to get back home, they have to travel, and, or you have to travel. That moment where you're saying goodbye, has anyone ever cried? I will admit it. It's happened to me. I've had to cry. The emotion of separating from someone that you love and care about is heart-wrenching. Paul feels that to the point where he feels like he's been orphaned. That's a tremendous heart connection he has with these people. It's not based on money and what he can get out of the relationship. It is genuine love. And he says, I've been separated to you from a short time in person, but not in thought. He considers them near and dear, brothers and sisters. And he talks about, hey, I pray for you. I think about you. I hear good reports about you all the time. I talk to other people about your faith. You're always on my mind, even if we're not there in person. He says, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. Paul left because his life was in danger, literally, his life was in danger. Danger of being killed. And so he left. And it wasn't because he was afraid of death. He said many times, hey, I'd rather be with the Lord than, than be on this earth anymore. So I know where my heaven is, I know where my future is, and that, but for your sake, I'll be here. So it wasn't that he was afraid of death or afraid of dying itself. He just knew I have more work to do. And until the Lord calls me home, I need to keep moving forward here. I need to keep pushing forward. I need, there's more people that need to hear the gospel, there's more people that need evangelism, there's more people that have to be faced with a response, do I believe? And so he knew that his time had not come, so he left. But it wasn't out of fear, but he wants to visit them again. He wants to see them again. He wants to encourage them and share with them even more depth And mystery and beauty, the jewels of what Christianity and that gospel brings. He's just waiting for the time. And he says in verse 18, For we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan blocked our way. Wasn't Paul's fear? It wasn't that Paul couldn't raise the money for another mission trip to Thessaloniki. It wasn't that he was afraid. It wasn't that he didn't have opportunity or time or passion or desire. It was because Satan, however he did it, made it impossible for Paul to get back to the church, to get back to the city. This isn't the first and last time Paul has identified spiritual warfare. The warfare that the church, Christian church, faces in this world is not political. It's not social media. It's not culture. That's not the war we face. The war we face is not legislation that we like or dislike. The war that we face, our greatest enemy, is not music or movies or the entertainment industry. No, the number one enemy that we face, the number one challenge that we face is the influence and drive that Satan has over the wicked of this world to stop the message of grace. And it boggles my mind why someone like him hates the gospel so much because all the gospel is is a declaration of freedom and love And mercy and tenderness and forgiveness but he hates it and anytime that message goes forward he is going to fight with everything he has he'll fight and make people believe there is no God he'll fight to make the point that well you know what science has proved that there probably is not a God or it just doesn't matter it just doesn't matter just believe what you want and as long as you're true to your belief you're okay Satan fills the world with lies and deception. He fills the world with things that occupy your time so your attention is not on Christ, but it's on what you need to do. He can even bring financial ruin to get your eyes focused on what you've lost instead of who you still have. He can bring health problems. So you doubt, does God really love me? He is a master of lies, to the point where he is described as a lion, a wolf, ravenous, full of desire to devour, that dresses himself up like a Sunday morning Christian. Just to fool us. Paul has more to say about Satan and his spiritual warfare in Ephesians chapter 6. Famous passage there. I know that you've seen this before, you've read it before, but it's incredibly important. I'm just going to read through Ephesians chapter 6 starting in verse 10. You don't have to turn there, it is a long passage. But it says, finally, and again, this is Paul writing to another church he starts this time in Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not... Against flesh and blood. It's not against the system. It's not against society. It's not against culture. It's not against the education system. It's not against the entertainment. It's not against any of that. But it is against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. That is where our enemy resides. That is where he works, that is where he functions, that is where he has power in the darkness of the spiritual world. And he does use his power to influence bad decisions. He does use his power to influence bad cultural norms. He does use his influence to influence education and politics and even sports. He uses his influence anywhere he can to get our focus and confidence off of Christ, whatever it might be. And Paul identifies it not as a flesh-and-blood problem, not a problem with the person who's doing it, but with the person who's behind it, the real person behind it, Satan, the devil. Now that, of course, does not give people the excuse, the devil made me... Do it, okay? Because God holds us each responsible. The devil's not a puppet master controlling us. Our heart leads us where our heart leads us because that's where it is. The devil just simply uses our heart and says, ooh, this is an evil heart. I can, I can show it something evil, and it will love it, and it will do it. And so Paul, for the rest of that chapter in, in uh, Ephesians chapter 6, talks about the full armor of God. What do we need to do and have To resist this influence, Paul was trying to resist it, but he notices in 1 Thessalonians, he's winning at times. I can't get back to you because of what the devil's doing. Now, what is he doing? I have no idea. Paul doesn't explain what he's doing. And for us to to imagine it is just making it up at that point. Maybe Paul couldn't find the transportation. Maybe he just couldn't. Maybe he was busy elsewhere. Whatever it is, he identified it's the devil at play here. That is preventing me from reaching you the way I want to. He continues in verse 19 and 20, uh, kind of a little bit of encouragement here, amazing encouragement. He goes, uh, For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when He comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory. And joy. I don't know how Paul makes the switch from hey, I want to come see you, the devil's not letting me. Oh, by the way, you are my joy. You are exciting to me. I feel that you are a crown, an ornamental crown of riches in my life. It's almost as Paul is talking to his wife. You're my joy. You're my love, you're my passion, you are my focus. Look at the words he uses here. What is our hope, our joy, our crown, in which we glory in the presence of the Lord Jesus when he comes? When Jesus comes, you know what I'm going to be thinking about? It's how glorious of a Christian you are. Not because Paul gets a pat on the back, oh, look, Paul, you did all the good work. No, because God intervened in your life and changed you. And that is praiseworthy forever and ever and ever that God entered into your life and made something beautiful out of it when it was destined for judgment. God brought you grace. And that whole transition and transaction from fallen to redeemed, Paul is thrilled about When was the last time we considered a church a source of hope, joy, and a crowning jewel? We don't often. Sometimes we think about what we want changed when we think of a church, what we want different. But Paul says, you know what? The crowning jewel is not the stuff around us. It's you. You are near and dear to my heart. That is incredible. That is just joyous that he is the source of joy moving on in fact I want to talk just real quick about a verse from Revelation chapter 3 now fair warning anytime we get into the book of Revelation there's always going to be challenges to how it's interpreted we're not going there we're going to a verse that is crystal clear in the book of Revelation It's in Revelation chapter 3, to the church at Philadelphia, uh, starting in verse 7, but I'm going to start kind of in the middle of verse 7, where he actually says this to that church in Philadelphia. Uh, Not our Philadelphia, but the Philadelphia in Turkey, Asia Minor. Uh, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. That's Jesus. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. And then he addresses the people. I know your deeds. All right? Confirmation that Jesus watches our actions. He knows your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you keep my word and have not denied my name. And then listen to this verse. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan. That's something you never want to be called. (laughs) I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them. What is he going to make them do? Come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge I have loved you. What is he doing? Jesus is going to take these enemies that are influenced by Satan beyond all reasonable expectation, who hate God, who are liars to the core, and he's going to make them bow down before the saints and acknowledge God loves you immensely and deeply. God really loves you. I I know we say it. I know it feels common. I know it doesn't have that force of emotion behind it, but you need to know God really, really loves you to the point where all of our enemies will be acknowledging God loves you. Did you know that that was part of the punishment? of the unsaved, of the unbeliever, that they're going to have to acknowledge God loves his children. That's part of the punishment that they are going to have to do. They're going to have to bow down and kneel and say, God loves you. Where all their life, every bit of their effort has been to deny that there is a God, to not to deny that there is sin, to deny that there's a fall, to deny that there's any relationship with God, and certainly to deny that Jesus Christ is the only hope. They will have to acknowledge, God loves you. That is how important it is for you to know that message, God loves you. Do you believe that? It's not just a quick little song lyric, you know, Jesus loves me this I know, for the Bible tells me so, which is an amazing biblical truth. But it's real. And whenever, whenever you feel alone, whenever you feel forgotten, whenever you feel slighted, whenever you feel desperate or lost, whenever you feel that you are fighting alone. You need to remember this, my brothers and sisters, that God loves you deeply. And nothing will change that fact. That his love for you is eternal. That it is passionate. That his love for you is deep. That His love for you is never changing. And you may not feel it at the time. You may feel everything but love. But God gives us these verses over and over in His Scripture to remind you. Because we are forgetful. Because our eyes turn from Christ to our own problems all the time. So He has to remind us time and time again, Brothers and sisters... You're deeply loved. Deeply loved. Even if you're not experiencing that from other humans, you're experiencing it from the God-man Jesus Christ. Fully God and fully human. And you're experiencing it from the Father of Light. The Eternal Father. The Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Never again doubt, does God love me? He does, deeply. And that love is so evident in Paul's mind that even though he is being stopped from visiting these brothers and sisters he feels like he's orphaned from, he says, I'm going to eventually send you help. In chapter 3, he does just that. He says... So when we could not stand it any longer, we thought it best be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and our co-worker in God's service and spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith. So he's going to send Timothy. That kind of... Young Christian that he brought under his wings That he's taken on several missionary journeys That has heard Paul present the gospel multiple times He goes, now Timothy Is a guy who's going to be able to strengthen your faith Because he's there spreading the gospel He's spreading that message Of creation and the fall And judgment and grace and a response He's there with me And he's going to be there to show you How deep and desperate God's love is for you So that no one would be unsettled by these trials. Because he knows there's, there's things going on in Thessalonica, there's persecution, there's, there's not martyrdom yet, but there is certainly a lot of troubles that the Christian has to endure. And so he wants them to be strengthened and encouraged during those trials. So Timothy is the guy. For you know quite well that we are destined for them. What are we destined for? What does Paul talk about just right before in that first sentence? Trials. Trials. I, ignorantly, when I first became a Christian, (sighs) presented the gospel to many people with this kind of phrasing. I, I, I was new. I hadn't even spent much time in the Lord. I didn't have a lot of knowledge. I certainly was not discipled and so I kind of went out on my own and I told people that if you believe in Jesus you're gonna have a wonderful life if you want a wonderful life if you want a happy life if you want a fun life you need to believe in Jesus because Jesus will change your life into a fun happy comfortable life I was so wrong Jesus has never promised once once if you believe in him, your life will start to make sense, and it will get better. Never once. In fact, he has said the opposite. If you follow me, you need to understand if they persecuted me, they're going after you too. So if you want to follow me, you've got to take up your cross and realize that you will come under Pressure to change. And so God sends people into our lives like the church like teachers like elders, like friends to encourage us and to strengthen us because we're going to face trials and it's going to test our belief does Jesus love me? Or am I on my own? Is all this just for show? Is this really a crutch for people who are weak? Or is this really the eternal God saying, I'm with you, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Are you going to believe that even when it is tough? Even when the car gets broken, even when the job is lost, even when the health goes away? Are you going to trust me? Are you going to remember I love you or are you going to turn your back on all the beauty of the gospel? So Paul says, Timothy's there to encourage and strengthen you because you're going to go through trials and you need the help. We can't get through them on our own. He continues and says, For you know quite well that we are destined for them. In fact... While we were with you, he says in verse 4, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. And it turned out, it turned out that way. As you well know, they were driven from the town. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter, that is the devil, had tempted you away that our labors might have been in vain. So Paul sends help. Paul suggests, he will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. God does great work in his people so that his people would reflect that great work in the lives of others. Just like Paul was not there to preach and leave, Paul's heart was connected to the people. Paul's passion was their good spiritual welfare. And when he couldn't be there, he sends Timothy and says, strengthen them, help them. You know how deep our love is, you need to protect them from the tempter. Give them scripture, give them knowledge, give them example, give them ample food. So that when they are faced with the trials, their faith would be shown genuine, their love would be sincere, because that's what everyone needs, is the love from the person next to them during those times of trials. And that has always been the case. And what's beautiful is that it's, it's not common for everyone to be going through the same trial. It's not common. Outside of what's happened the last few months, maybe someone had a trial over on this side and someone had a trial over on this side. People in the middle never had trials. That's the good seats. No trial seats. And the person next to him could relate to him and say, hey, I've been through that, but I need to remind you, Jesus loves you. And that's not just a a dime type of an answer. It's a real deep answer. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. And it's rare to have a situation where an entire church, regardless of an entire city and nation and world, goes through the same thing at the same time, even more so. We need to remind each other, hey, I I know we can't volunteer together, serve together, and wow, we can't even sit next to each other. And we have to go outside to talk to each other. But I need to remind you, that what we're going through is nothing compared to the resource of love that Jesus has for us. And there is no better moment to remind us of Jesus' love than communion. Because communion puts in front of us and in our hand the visible, physical reminder that God's love for you is so real that He gave up His only Son out of love To make you whole again. Communion's a little bit different today, physically. Spiritually, we're still there connected. It's still communion with God and with one another. But as Ron and Sam come up, they're going to have to put on gloves, and they are going to hand you uniquely individual, contained uh, uh, grape juice and... uh, Wafers. I have personally tried these. It can be challenging to open them. So, if you need help opening them, I'm also going to put on gloves, or you can have a family member help you open it. I say that with the expectation that no one here is going to have troubles. But there's going to be that one that just doesn't open up right, we'll get you another one they will hand it to you please don't grab it yourself this way we kind of keep things a little bit uh, as safe as we think they can be Uh, so i will also ask that only one row at a time kind of stand up and come and when that row sits the next row can come because usually we kind of line up in a line of like 200 people we can't do that Uh, so we're going to ask the first row to come then the next row then the next row when they come And just please police that all by yourself. I know you can do it. But with all that being said, let's not forget. It's not about how it's given out. It's not about how it's put in your hand. It's about reminding you that this love of God for you is costly.